Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from New York. With me is Chaim Gaifman, professor of philosophy at Columbia University and emeritus professor of mathematics and Roosevelt Chair of Philosophy and the History and Philosophy of Science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he is here to talk with us about mathematical reasoning. Chaim Gaifman, welcome. Thank you. So a big question that philosophers have asked for a pretty long time about mathematics is, are numbers real entities independent of what people say and think about them, or are they just sort of cultural constructs? You know, you might imagine, I don't know, maybe if a second asteroid had hit and, you know, killed off all the proto-homo sapiens, you know, human civilization had never started... Would it still be true that 2 plus 3 equals 5 and everything else that's true about all the numbers? Or are all the facts about mathematics just determined by kind of stipulations we make and definitions we make? So are numbers just kind of social constructs? Okay, I think the, the question is a tricky one because if you push people to say what are numbers, they find themselves a little bit confused. The numbers are not things that you can hold in your hand. So uh, let's go on with this game and assume that there have been no humans or the earth was destroyed or something like that. Or let's assume a stage in which there are no longer humans. Now, people find it very easy to imagine that there will be rocks and stars and galaxies and so on. There is no problem. But they should pay a little bit attention to the kind of scenario that they themselves assume. Because certainly there would be, say, eight or nine planets, depending how you classify them. And eight planets, this means you can arrange them in groups of four and four, or four groups of two, and so on. And the galaxies will have a certain distance from each other, and the distance is measured by using numbers and certain dimensions in physics, and so on. So all the apparatus that you are assuming in describing, so to speak, an objective world without humans still is meaningless without using mathematical concepts. I can ask you, would there be three rocks there or would there be nine rocks there? And if there are nine rocks there, could it be arranged in three groups of three and so on? And you are using mathematics all throughout this description. So to say that there would be no mathematics really makes no sense. You really cannot even conceptualize what a world would be there. Either you are completely uh, skeptical about existing of something without humans, and this is one position, but if you think that there is a physical world to exist that can exist without humans, 
you must give the same status to mathematics. The fact that you don't have uh, little rocks or little pebbles which you call number one, two, and three, and four makes no difference. Obviously, if we are going to imagine what the numbers could be, you can posit abstract entities to play the role of numbers, just like you posit an abstract entity which is called the equator to give you a description of the Earth. I mean, when you come to the equator, you won't find any line in the sand and nothing to signify this. But still, the equator as an abstract object, which is very useful for describing the physical world, has a certain status of an objective entity, and the same thing is about mathematics. Let me give you another example, which shows that what should interest us is not the existence or non-existence of numbers, but questions about mathematical truth, okay? So, for example, suppose you consider an hypothesis in number theory. The hypothesis is that there are infinitely many twin primes. Now, twin primes are primes whose difference is two. For instance, three and five are twin primes because three is a prime and three plus two is a prime, okay? Similarly, 17 and 19 are twin primes because 17 is a prime and 19 is also a prime as the difference is two. Now, it's a very hard question to determine whether the twin primes go on and on and on or whether they stop at a certain point. Now, if you come to think about it, you will find yourself thinking that surely there must be an answer to this question. Just imagine. All you have to do is to go on and try one prime after another. And as long as you'll come up with a new pair of twin primes, then you know, okay, up to here there are twin primes, let's go on. So imagine yourself writing the answers in a long series. Either this series goes on and on forever, or it stops. I mean, it doesn't seem that there is any other possibility here. Now, to check whether a given number is a prime, it is easy. You have to find out whether there is some smaller number which divides it. So you check the first number, you check whether it's a prime, you take the number, you add two, you check if that's a prime. If the answer is positive, you say, okay, this is a pair of twin primes. You go on and on and on and on. And the idea is that you can go on indefinitely in this way, and the resulting sequence will either be infinite or it will stop at a certain point. And this is why most mathematicians think that there is an objective answer to this question. Now, once you agree that there is an objective answer to this question, and that this question does not depend on our knowledge, there might be infinitely many and we cannot prove it, or they might, even if it stops at a certain point, how can you prove it? Because you don't know, you have to go on. Even if this is the case, it seems to be a fact of the matter, whether there are twin primes or not. So imagine yourself doing calculations and going on and on and on. The question is, will you hit something or you won't hit something? I mean, uh, about 20 years ago, there was a big breakthrough in number theory when the Fermat's conjectures was proven. 
Fermat's conjecture is a very simple conjecture. It means that if you are looking for three natural numbers, x, y, z, that will be natural numbers such that x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n, this, let's call it a triplet, a triplet for power n, and you want the exponent to be greater than 1, okay? So you want an exponent like x to the n, where n can be 2, 3, or 4, and so on, x to the n plus y to the n, and so on. The conjecture was that if you take n to be 2, there is a solution. We know there are lots of solutions. These are called Pythagorean numbers. But if n is any number greater than 2, there is no solution, okay? So everyone can understand the contents. It's not very difficult, even if you don't know mathematics, to see what the problem is. You might not think, why is it so interesting? You have to be a number theorist to appreciate it. But the fact that for two, you have lots of numbers which satisfy it. For instance, 3 to the 2 plus 4 to the 2 equals 5 to the 2. 3 squared is 9 plus 4 squared, 16, equals 5 squared, 25. And there is a method of generating all of them. And there are infinitely many such triplets. But if instead of 2 you put 3 or 4 or 5 or any bigger number, there are no solutions. So this was a conjecture. Fermat wrote in the margins of a certain book that he found a proof, a very ingenious, simple proof, but because he doesn't have place to write it, he doesn't write it. And then mathematicians ever since, and this was in the 17th century, so we are almost 250 years after that, mathematicians tried to prove it. It was a famous problem. Uh, until around 1994, Andrew Wiles, a mathematician from Princeton, proved it. And then there was a mistake in the proof, and then he spent uh, about a year, a year and a half, in fixing it together with a student of his. And uh, this was a big result. You see, the result is that there are no solutions. But even if Andrew Wiles didn't prove it, and if nobody found the proof, the result would be still true. There are no solutions. Okay? So there are results like this, questions like this in mathematics, especially in number theory, in which we cannot find the proof, and we cannot give a counterexample, we cannot decide them, but still obviously we think that there is a fact of the matter. So this means that mathematical statements describe a certain type of reality, mathematical reality. It doesn't matter whether it's not physical reality, what kind of reality, this is a very deep question, but the everyday intuitions are, if you think about it, that there should be an answer to this question even if we cannot find it. Okay. I want to emphasize one other thing that sometimes you hear the statement or the claim that it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The question is whether you can prove it or you can disprove it. Okay. But think, what does it mean you can prove it? You can prove it means you can find a proof. A proof is also an abstract entity. And essentially to say that there exists a proof is of the same kind of question like there exists a natural number. Because a proof is, you can actually code the proofs into natural numbers. This was a 
a big uh, ingenious trick uh, found by Gödel that you can code proofs into natural numbers. So to ask whether there exists a proof is to ask whether there exists a natural number. And you think that this question makes sense. If you think that this question makes sense, then you subscribe to the view that certain mathematical statements have an objective status. And this is what is important. We'll later find out, let, let philosophers find out how exactly to describe the natural numbers. There are various proposals for doing it. Obviously, they will have to be abstract entities, but that's a different story. The interesting story is about mathematical truths. What kind of truth is it? What kind of validity is there? And so on. Okay, so the moral we should draw from these cases then, these are all cases of outstanding mathematical claims that are easy to understand and intuitively seem like they're probably true, but for which we don't yet have a proof. It seems like implicit in all of that is that, yeah, even before we found a proof yay or a proof nay um, about any of these statements, it's like it's not up to us whether they're true or false. They're true or false independently of whether we've managed to find a proof for them yet. So that's why they're called conjectures. You've been interested in some kind of basic but difficult to solve mathematical questions which actually have been solved, but you think the process of going through how to give a proof for them uh, tells us something interesting about the nature of mathematical reasoning and perhaps mathematical knowledge. So one example that you've worked on is this domino game where you place dominoes on a tiled board. Um, so how does that, uh, well, how does that the, puzzle go? Okay, so this shows you what kind of reasoning or what underlies a lot of mathematical reasoning. Mathematics is really about how we arrange. It's a, it's a way of arranging the world around us and to view it from a certain point. That means... These arrangements are arrangements that we use, but you need a philosopher of math or a mathematician to make us aware of these kinds of arrangements. And a great deal of mathematics goes into finding a point of view which gives you the solution because you simply, it's like you see a, a picture, a lot of things, and you don't see what the picture is really about. And then you shift your gaze and say, okay, let's look at it from this point of view. And then you see all of a sudden you have the answer. So mathematics does it on a very high level and you have to be an expert in an area. But you develop this kind of intuition, this way of looking at things, which promises to give a proof. So here is an example, which is a puzzle. And there are many puzzles like that. And the puzzle is the following one. Imagine a board of 8 cross 8 squares. So it is divided into 8 squares on one axis and 8 squares, and you have the board, which is 64 squares altogether. Now, the first question that I ask you, can you tile it with domino pieces, where every domino piece is a rectangle, which covers exactly two adjacent squares, okay? And you want to cover every square, and you don't want the domino extending below the board. It, it should fit exactly within the board, and there should be no overlap, okay? Let's call this a tiling. Now, many mathematical problems, some very difficult, stem from tilings. 
This is a very simple case of tilings. If you have 64 squares, the tiling is trivial, it's obvious. You use four domino pieces to tile the first row, then four domino pieces to tile the second, and so on. Each one is eight, and you tile all of them. Very well. That's trivial, right? No big deal. Now, suppose I take and cut out the corner of this board, okay? Suppose I, I cut out the left corner of the board, okay? That means it is to the left and down the corner of the board. Imagine the board you cut out. And then you want to tile, let's call it the mutilated board, the board that misses one corner. Can you do it? And the answer is also easy because now you have 63 squares to tile. And since every one covers exactly two, you cannot tile it because every, the number that you can cover would have to be an even number because each domino covers exactly two. So if you take out one corner, you cannot tile it. This is also trivial. Okay, so let's make it more interesting and say you take out the left down corner and you take also the corner which is diagonal from it, the right upper corner. So it's like you take the, di the main diagonal, one of the main diagonals, and you cut the two corners from the board. Okay, now you have 62. And for 62, it's an even number, so you don't know whether you can cover it or not, okay? Now, if you start to try to find coverings by domino, this might take a very, very long time. Now, perhaps in the case of 64, can work through it, but you yourself won't be able to work through it. You'll have to use a computer, which tries to tile it in all in a systematic way, and then if you have written the program correctly, you'll get the answer. The computer will say, no, I tried all the possibilities, you, get, you, you cannot, or it will give you a timing, okay. So this is for 64, but the same question can be raised for 1,000, okay. So if you can find a program that will do it for 64, and the number of possible tilings grows, roughly speaking, exponentially. So, because you have to, all the possibilities, try to do it in a systematic way and you see how much time you have to spend. So for a big enough board, even a computer wouldn't be able to do it. And the question is, can you find a tiling or not? Is, is there a tiling? I mean, you cannot find it perhaps, but is there a tiling or not? So this has nothing to do with infinity. It is a finite, but very big finite problem. And so this is a question. It's a puzzle. It's not a deep mathematical problem, but it is, some people might be intrigued by it. Now, let me give you an argument which shows you in a couple of minutes, and you will be convinced that there is no tiling. Okay. And the trick you use is the following. And that's why I also started with a 64, because it's like a chessboard. So color the squares exactly like they are colored in chess. So you'll have black, white, from left to right, black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white, and so on. So imagine this board exactly as in chess. Now notice that if you tile it, then every domino piece covers one white and one black, because the black are adjacent to the white, and the white are adjacent to the black, so every domino will have to cover one color, and then the other one will be a different color. 
Okay, so if you can tile it, there should be the same number of whites as of black squares. Because every domino covers one white, one black. Now if you took two squares from two opposite corners, you took two squares with the same color. So if you start with black, white, black, white, you took two black squares. So you have less black than white, therefore you cannot tile it. Okay, so this is the argument. And you can see that the same argument will work for million cross million squares. You'll get an even number, but the number of colors will be different. Therefore, you cannot tile it. So this is a mathematical trick. And the trick, it, I should tell you, it's a very difficult trick to find. Once you see the solution, it's obvious. But the trick is very difficult trick. Because what you are adding here, you are adding here another dimension of color and another kind of symmetry, and, and which in, this additional machinery enables you to see in one glance that there is no possible tiling. Okay? So this is a kind of mathematical reasoning. You introduce something, you shift a little bit your gaze, and hope you find the solution. And there are scores of puzzles of this sort, which an elementary school kid, I think, uh, seventh or eighth grade, will be, it will be obvious for them, which, if you don't see the trick, you cannot do it. And mathematics does this, but in a very systematic way, on a much more abstract level, because mathematics, in, they invent the structures at the same time. So eventually they can come and give you answers to very difficult questions, but you need a very systematic theory, and this theory is all how one structure goes into another structure, how the whole thing works together. Okay, le let me give you another example of the same kind, which involves the concept of a game. But again, I won't define what a game is. Everyone will see what the game is, and this is a kind of question that a seventh grader or an eighth grader should have no difficulty in grasping. Okay, so imagine a perfectly round table, a big table which is like a perfect circle, and you have quarters, and the quarters are perfect little circle. And each of the players places in his or her turn a coin on the table. So let's call them player one, player two. Player one places a coin, player two places a coin, player one places a coin, and so on. They take turn in placing coins on the table. And you have a, a large amount of coins, so it doesn't matter, because eventually you run out of places to place the coins. Now the coins can touch each other, but they shouldn't overlap, and they shouldn't extend beyond the border of the table. They can be tangent, they can touch the border, but they should all lie within the table without overlapping. So if you, the area of the table is such and such, and the area of each coin is also such, you can see that after so and so many moves, you will run out of places. Of course, I mean, you won't cover the whole thing because the coins are circles, so there will be a lot of empty spaces between them. But that will be the situation, and you can even estimate the number of steps. Now, the first player that runs out of place, that cannot place his or her coin loses this game, okay? And the question is, 
can you find a method, a way of playing the game such that you are guaranteed a win? That means if you are the first player, can you find a way of playing the game in which you win? And if you are the second player, can you find a, is there a method of playing the game? What's called a strategy. But the strategy is really a kind of an instructions how to play this game when your turn comes so that you are sure that your opponent will run out of space before you run out of space. That's a question. And if you think about it, you might think it's a very difficult question because, I mean, how are you going to play so that you will always have a place to, you are guaranteed? Here is a solution. And this again calls attention to a feature of the whole thing, a, a certain symmetry. Now, the answer is the first player can always win. There is a method which guarantees the first player a win, player one. So here is the method. Player one places a coin exactly at the center of the table. Exactly at the center of the table. That's the first coin. Now, player two will have to place his or her coin at some point on the circle. And then when it places the coin at some point in the circle, player one goes and places it at the symmetric, connects the coin to the center and goes on and places it so that it will get exactly a symmetric configuration. Okay? So imagine like a watch, suppose I place it at number 12, then the other one will place it at number 6. If I place it at number, say, 9, in the, then the other one number 3 and so on. He places it always in a symmetric situation. So after the first player completed this, the other player gets a symmetric configuration. So if there is a place in which the other player, player two, can place the coin, the symmetric will be an open place in which player one can come and counter and place it there. Okay, so the player one is guaranteed not to run out of places because he all, the player one always gives to player two a symmetric configuration. He starts by placing in the center and then he gives the player two a symmetric configuration and by this kind of symmetry, so that guarantees that the other will run out of places before player one run, run out of places. So this is again, you call attention to the symmetry of the situation. You, you use a symmetry of the situation in order to guarantee that you will always have a place. So the one who run, to run out of places will be the other player. Now, of course, if imagine that in the center there is a hole, so you cannot put it in the center, then player two will have this strategy because player one will put it at some place and then he, player two can put it at the symmetric opposite to that. Okay. But now imagine that the, the table is not exactly symmetric, but there is, it's a kind of a mutilated table and so on. So it's very difficult to answer. I don't know that there is any solution to that in general to find a strategy. I mean, there is a theorem in game theory that one of the players will have a strategy. But to know which of the players has a strategy might be very, very difficult. So these little puzzles exemplified on a small scale the nature of mathematical reasoning. Now I should warn you that mathematics is not a collection of small puzzles. 
It's a big, it's an enormous system, which is being used in physics, in engineering, all around us. And this is because our physical world can be described by mathematical rules to a large extent. I mean, the, the fact that the physical world follows rules, regularities that can be described in mathematics is, some philosophers think, unexplainable. It's a brute fact about our physical world that mathematics works with it. And we wouldn't have any physical science and engineering and whatever, and no, not the modern society, if we were not able to grasp this basic fact and to use it in order to construct physics, engineering, and all the natural sciences. So yeah, these two examples are very interesting. They both seem to have the feature where they're very difficult puzzles to solve, even though they're very easy to state and it's easy to understand what the problem is. But then the other thing that's interesting about them is once someone has found an elegant solution to them, the solution is really easy to understand, and it seems kind of obvious, like, oh my god, how did I not think of that? You know, so in the case of the coin-placing game, at first it just seems, like, overwhelming. Like, how could I possibly... There's so many different places on this circular table that I could place my, my quarters. How could I possibly guarantee that I win? I mean, but then as soon as somebody comes out with the strategy, you know, first, player one places the quarter right in the center of the table, then... Wherever player two places a quarter, you just place your quarter on the opposite side of the center, the same distance from the center, and keep doing that. Eventually, player two is going to run out of locations to place their quarter, and you'll win if you're player one. That's very intuitive because you just if you think about the way a circle is set up, every point within the circle has another point on the opposite side of it, except for the center. So that's pretty striking because all you have to do is just basically picture a circular surface in your head and then play out this scenario of, yeah, you know, I put a quarter here, my opponent puts a quarter there, I put a quarter here, my opponent puts a quarter there. And if I do this, yeah, actually, I can see now how I'm going to win. You know, no matter what my opponent does, I'm guaranteed to win this way. So this is very striking that problems like this seem incredibly difficult to us before they're solved and incredibly easy to us after they're solved. One question I think that raises about mathematics is, does that make mathematics kind of a cumulative discipline? Because one thing that people often say about philosophy is that philosophers are perennially arguing over the same questions. You know, we're still, uh, you know, philosophers never achieve complete consensus. It, so does this mean that mathematics is not like that? Does it mean that once you've established something, it automatically becomes obvious and so that mathematics is always kind of moving forward? It doesn't become obvious, but mathematics is the accumulative discipline par excellence. I mean, this is really a discipline in which no matter what you discover, what you develop, if there is no mistake on it, if it's a good piece of mathematics, it finds a place in later development. It's In this respect, it's unique, not only comparing with philosophy, but comparing with any other science. In philosophy, not only there is no consensus, but there are trends and the problems shift all the time. I mean, yes, we know they originally 
emerged with the Greek, with the pre-Socratic, and with Plato and Aristotle and so on. But uh, if you you read what is written now, it might be some sort of inspired or a connection, but they are really changing. They are changing the subject, they are changing the way to look at it, and so on. And philosophy now and philosophy 40 years ago are completely different subjects. They are focused on different problems and so on. So it's changing very fast. It is non-accumulative. Physics is also non-accumulated, the natural science, empirical science. Uh, there was once a theory in which uh, they posited, they thought that there, would, there is some sort of substance called phlogiston. And phlogiston was a substance which was invented or supposed to explain fire. So burning was the release of phlogiston. And when phlogiston was released, the flame came up. It was a substance which was released in burning. And this, they had a theory and they could have asked how much phlogiston is there, what are the quantities of phlogiston, and so on and so forth. Later on, they found out the theory is all completely wrong. There is no sub subject. Burning consists in forming a compound uh, of carbon and oxide and so on. So it's actually, <coughs> there is no release, but there is capturing of substance. That, and, uh, and it becomes even heavier after the fire because it combines uh, with oxygen and so on. So there is no phlogiston. And once you find that there is no phlogiston, the whole area is scrapped. I mean, all questions, how much phlogiston and so on, becomes meaningless. Similarly, before general relativity, there was the ether theory about the ether, uh, light being a wave, motion of waves through the ether. And then when they found out there is no ether, that the, the whole thing was scrapped and so on. Now in mathematics, there is no phlogiston. No matter, you do mathematics, Later on, you change your point of view and so on. But if a theorem, the, there is no mistake in it, if it's a correct theorem, what will happen later, it will be incorporated within a wider perspective. It won't be lost, but you'll have a wider perspective on it. So mathematics grows all the time. What is shifting is the point of view, the innova conceptual innovation, and so on. For example, in some period, philosophers and mathematicians thought that there are no negative quantities because it's contradictory. It's by the very nature of quantity that they cannot be negatives. But negatives were invented as an auxiliary for computations. But nowadays, there's no problem with negatives because we, we have structures. We have uh, ways of arranging things in which computing with negatives makes perfect sense. So there is a structure of all the real line, positive and negative, imaginary. I mean, imaginary gives you the source that they thought they are not real numbers. They are imaginary. But in a certain sense, they are as real as the real numbers. So this is a conceptual innovation. And mathematics invents a lot of abstract ways to organize things. But nothing is lost. And this is unique among all disciplines. What do you think is the moral of these two examples we just discussed? The, uh, the tiling problem, you know, so how to cover a chessboard with two square size dominoes, and this coin-placing game. 
what do these cases teach us about the nature of mathematical reasoning? Okay, so if you are convinced by the answer, this might convince you that this is kind of a rock-bottom certainty. I mean, the answer is, is so convincing that there is no way of disputing this. If you dispute this, it means you don't understand what tiling is or what a board is and so on. And mathematics takes very basic concepts from our daily life, from the way we organize the world, and takes these basic frames and so on, and start to investigate these frames. The board is realized as a physical board. But in mathematics, it would be an abstract entity. Geometry, we know geometry from intuitive organizations of space. And geometry is extremely important because this is how a visual space to start with. 70% of the brain, 70, 70% of the brain is devoted to vision. So we, we have a very, very good spatial intuition. Some people are very much better than other people, but all of us know how to maneuver ourselves through space and so on. So mathematics caches on these basic structures which we understand and starts investigating their properties as abstract structures. So the problem makes sense First of all, because you know what a chess board is and you have experience and so on. But once you have a little experience, you can realize that this problem is an abstract problem as a standing of its own. So you don't need to have a board made of wood or of any other material. So mathematics abstracts away from the, if you want, the content of this, but takes the mode of organization the structure itself is given and investigates this. So mathematics really caches on very basic properties of the way we organize the world and the ways we organize our own activities in the world because games, they were invented by humans. So boards, games, tilings and so on, you might consider the tiling perhaps as something that is given, but certainly games is an activity which is invented by humans. But we know we have a deep insight into these activities. We know their structure. For instance, structure of a game like this is I make a move, you make a move, I make a move, you make a move, and so on. And at the end, there is some definition, some condition which decides who wins. Okay, so we know games from everyday activity and we have a deep insight into our own ways of organizing the world and mathematics is a science of these ways. So that seems pretty intuitive because both of the examples we discussed so far involve taking a look at a pretty concrete situation. I'm sitting here placing quarters on a table or... I'm sitting here placing dominoes on a chessboard and abstracting away the kind of core essential features of that situation I'm in and understanding it in the most general way possible. So mathematics is the study of these like really general structures. Is that controversial? Were there, yeah, I mean, what that other... is, I mean, to take this seriously, I mean, to take this and adopt a certain realist position about it so that the answer doesn't depend, it's not a social construct. 
I mean, you can imagine that uh, the world is empty without humans, but still, in order, you cannot say anything about it without using mathematical language. You think that rocks are more objective, you are wrong. Rocks are material, that means you can hit them, you can kick them, and so on, so you get this impression that there is something very realistic about it. But try to say anything meaningful about it, even imagine without humans, you'll come up with some description which, in which the whole thing is organized in a particular way, and there's no escaping from that. So to say that the whole thing is a social construct is, excuse me, it's nonsense. Chaim Gaifman, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.